Hello, friends, and welcome to episode six of Healing the Divide podcast. I'm so grateful to be joined today by Brian Hyman. Um, Brian is an author of the book Recovery with Yoga, which is available for pre-purchase right now, but will be available fully for sale on all platforms uh, come February 27th. Um, Brian, thank you so much for being here with me today. Uh, I would love to just take a quick moment to give you a proper introduction for our listeners. Um, so for those who don't know Brian, he is a yoga instructor, a meditation guide, a Dharma teacher, author, and father. He has been sober since 2009, and he's been teaching yoga and meditation at Cliffside Malibu since 2012. His dedicated work in the field of addiction treatment and recovery combines yoga and Buddhism. His innovative teachings about healing and transformation have been featured in many publications and podcasts, which is a nice segue uh, to being here with you today. Um, I want to share as well about Brian that um, supporting people with mental health challenges, obsession, anxiety, depression, um, if you're moving through any of those parts of your own human journey, the practices in his book are amazing gifts for you. They include inquiry practices, meditations, um, awareness and breathing exercises, yoga nidra, um, lots of different practices. And we'll talk about qualities of presence and virtues as well um, that I think will be really helpful for everybody on their journey of healing, whether that's in substance abuse um, or we're going to talk a little bit today about healing from grief. And we're all, we're all on a healing journey. And really the the path of of coming home to ourselves and it's it's a powerful conversation it's a necessary conversation it's a conversation i'm really grateful to have and a topic that we get just get to kind of exhale and settle into this space and really do a deep dive and look under the hood of addiction of recovery of yoga dharma and yoga practices and how they can contribute in a more meaningful way to support people that are on this journey of healing. So I would love to start with asking you this question. Um, in my own trainings, in, in coaching and yoga, etc., a lot of the ways that we're trained is to identify when people are quote unquote in story, and then kind of almost like call them out of that. Some people would say call them out on that. Um, and yet I think one of the things I've learned in, in my relationship that I'm in is, is how powerful story is not to be self-identified or like really collapse identity into the story, but to be able to share it, be able to tell it, be able to even rewrite it, um, but to, to own it in a way that it doesn't own us. And I think that's going to be a thread that kind of moves through this story of yoga and recovery um, today. And I wanted to start with just asking you if you're comfortable to share a little bit about your story, um, the journey of your um, sobriety, what even um, preceded that, maybe what life was like prior, and then your foray into yoga, ultimately yoga teaching, and then into writing this book and being you know, where you are now and giving everybody a sense of not just background in terms of the what, but maybe the more deeper human layer of the experience that you've been traveling. 
Sure. Well, first, thanks, Scott, for having me on the podcast, for inviting me to talk about recovery and yoga and everything else you mentioned. Uh, it has been quite a journey for me personally to, to be here today through addiction, through recovery, becoming a yoga teacher, all the things you mentioned. And it's definitely part of my story. Uh, when you mention the story, it's, it's, it's neat because I've been sober 14 years. So if somebody would have asked me what my story was early in my recovery, my perception at that time was was rather limited. I didn't know it at the time. With reflection, all these years later, I can look back and see that certain things stood out to me as, as problematic. Certain things were challenging, other things that were helpful. And it's neat because with time, with practices, with development, unfoldment, spiritual, emotional, psychological, these, these types of things we become aware of on a healing path in recovery, uh, on a yogic path, on a spiritual path, the story does change. The essential elements are there. I know it was me who got sober. I know it was me who lived this life that I think about as my life. But where I get to stand today from this vantage point, on any given day, I might give you a totally different answer. And mm. it's neat because um, there's... Um, there's fluidity to that and there's there's creativity to that and i do get to rewrite my story i don't change the details i change the way i look at the details so if there was sadness or depression that still exists but it's no longer an enemy it's no longer something i'm trying to fight with anymore my depression today is my friend my anger that used to destroy me is now a friend of mine it really helps me move where i need to move to, to advocate for something. I need that energy of anger. So, um, But I will give some details for, for the listeners, for anyone uh, who may be struggling, uh, who may need um, some suggestions or just to identify. One powerful thing about story, as you know, is we get a chance to identify as soon as another human being says something like, oh, I grew up here. Oh, I grew up there too. You can identify. Or I grew up in this religion. Me too. We identify. Or I'm sober. I'm sober too. I'm a yoga teacher. I'm a yoga teacher. Um, so my story, my story as um, as someone who started to uh, to drink. Uh, for me, uh, when I talk about recovery, it, it begins with um, alcohol. Was was the main thing that started to make itself known to me as a way to uh, escape the present moment, to, to blot out my consciousness, to, to zone out, to, to feel better, to feel loose, to forget things. And I started that in my teenage years. And then somewhere in my 20s, you know, it became a little bit more uh, regular, routine, ritualistic. And I knew I had an issue early on. Most of my friends were drinking, and, and we all went out, and, and, and we would have a good time and party or whatever you call it these days. And there were no major repercussions. I could still go to work or go to school the next day. Uh, when it started to get a little bit more serious was when the the thinking got more serious. So the drinking for me personally was never the problem. I could drink fine. I was good at that. When the thinking became the prevalent thread, the narrative thread, the story in my head throughout the day, when I'm going to drink, how I'm going to drink, where I'm going to drink, how I'm going to get away with drinking, how I'm going to lie about what I was drinking, when I was drinking, and why I was drinking, that became the chatter in my mind, the, the incessant 
insanity that 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 became unbearable and i knew i had an issue because i i started to think most of my friends probably aren't thinking all day long about drinking tonight they're probably working and just living a decent normal life and so that became the issue where i thought i think i might have a problem with this because i just can't wait to finish this day or finish this thing or finish this fill in the blank so i can just go home and drink or just that went on for uh, it went on for years, and it, it's a progressive disease. Alcoholism, addiction—they're progressive. It, gets, it just gets gradually worse, and more repercussions, and more denial, and more avoidance of trying to step up into what I'm here to do, my purpose. Uh, so, I, all this time I was working. I lived in a few different cities. I was starting to. I was chasing a lot of dreams and and creative endeavors. And uh, it finally got to a point where uh, it made me miserable. And I got very. I became very isolated. I isolated myself. Uh, became depressed and anxious and angry and fearful. And um, it was time to do something. So for me personally, and, and this. Um, this was, was a moment of clarity for me. I got to a point where I just didn't recognize myself anymore. I looked in the mirror. I was in my early thirties and I just didn't see the person I knew to be me in the mirror. I'm looking at a ghost. It was not my face. They were not my eyes. Energetically, uh, my aura, if you will, was different. I couldn't recognize the person in the mirror and it scared me. Um, and around this time, my mother had passed away recently, and I was with her near the end of her life. And I really had a chance to be in touch with, with the, the, how fragile our mortality is. I was holding her hand when she passed away. And so in my hand, I had death and I had life. And I was able to, 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 to be that steward for her. I was able to hold her hand and, 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 and she was in this life. And then she was in the next place, wherever we go. So I knew what that was. In my hand was life and death. And I get to this place where I'm looking in the mirror and I'm just starting to examine, what am I here for? If life is so short, if life is so fragile, if any of us could leave this this miracle of life at any moment, what am I going to do with the time I have left? It was it was a call to action that, that came to me, not from me. I wouldn't challenge myself this way. It was something that came through me. It was an, it was an invitation, basically, uh, suit up and show up. And, you know, I later realized that was my higher power. That was what I call spirit, source, God. That was moving through me and saying, it's your time. It's your time. Rise up. Let's do it. And I... I did what I needed to do. I, for me, it was getting to the early stages of recovery. So basically, at that time, I know nothing about sobriety, recovery, 12-step, nothing. I have no idea. I don't know anyone who's sober. I don't have an uncle to call. I don't have a, a role model. There's no neighbor. There's no church. Uh, you know, there's nothing. And somehow I go online. I just start looking up, what do you do if you're alcoholic? How do you get help? What's AA? What's 12-step? What's... what's um, What's treatment? What's rehab? What's what's sober living? And long story short, if we can shorten it up a little bit here, was I eventually got to some twelve step meetings and I did what was suggested and and I'm here today, fourteen years later, still sober, one day at a time. 
And I want to invite everybody that's listening, um, even if that's in, you know, obviously that's going to be in the future because we're recording in this moment. But as, as you're taking it in to just take a breath here and let's just have a moment here to let that settle. That was really, really, really powerful and beautiful. Thank you for your humility, for your vulnerability, um, for the trust to be able to share this story. Um, for, for the wisdom and the inspiration that I trust will flow through to people that are in the space where they, that is the exact message at the exact moment when they needed to hear it. And that's kind of the beauty of the story. It's a mostly, you know, we both love yoga and yoga, dharma and history and philosophy. And, um, you know, look at the Upanishads, right? I mean, these are little zip files of stories so that the teaching could travel over many millennia because the story holds power. And I appreciate you sharing yours. Um, man, I, I would love to, I would love to reciprocate and share a little journey. Um, when I was in, in my twenties, um, I was in, when I was finishing up college and then into those years after, and I was living in Atlanta with all of my friends and it was, you know, we, we had started a business and gotten some investment funding. And so we were just, I mean, all the time, like in that energy of workaholism and then party at night. It was at least probably five nights. Like the off night was, we're just going to smoke some bowls, watch the Simpsons, catch a late movie, and then hit it, you know, right back at it Monday morning. And there were days it would be like midday work day, and I'm still in my pajamas because I I can't afford. I don't have the luxury to stop, get dressed, take a shower, brush my teeth, and eat breakfast. We we have stuff to do, and that's what matters most. And it was that kind of a pace, and you know, mixing everything. It's like we were our own chemistry labs in, in our bodies. What would happen if we mixed this with that? And, you know, and, and it was, it was a wild way to live. Um, there was particularly one night where my roommate uh, said he heard a knock on the door and one of the neighbors was there like three, four in the morning. And she was standing there kind of like this. And if you're just listening right now, I've got like my arm kind of my fist to my side with my elbow out wide. And so in that little gap of that circle was a human that was sort of folded over that um, she said, I just dragged him out of the bushes um, down the street. And it was me. And he's like, oh man, he brought me in late and down on the couch, woke me up the next morning. He said, do you remember? I said, I don't remember any of it. And it wasn't, but a few weeks later, my girlfriend at the time said, um, I want to, I want to try yoga. And, um, and I was like, yeah, I think I was exposed to that in like a stress management class in college. And I remember liking, it was mostly meditation, but there was a little bit of like simple asana. And, um, and so I, I was open, you know, I was open and I went and, um, and I liked it. And it started to kind of speak to a, this dormant part of me that was always there, but just sort of got obscured through a different lifestyle. And, um, and then one day, same girlfriend says, um, Hey, there's a, there's a psychic fair. Do you want to go with me? 
And I'm like, oh, I'm just like, it's like, again, you know, it's like all oh, these, these people are wearing too much makeup and they're saying all, you know, I was, I'm completely shut down. We go to this room. It's literally like in this room with a ton of tables and psychics just sitting there. So, you know, you put in, you know, your name, they call you up there. It's your turn. I go sit, not unlike I am right now, but in real, in person sitting across from this lady. And she just looks at me and she says, Hmm. This is, this is an interesting case, is what she said. And I said, what do you mean? And now, I'm, mind you, I'm super shut down, closed, skeptical. I'm not giving away anything. And she says to me, you are like at a fork in the road. You have one of two paths in front of you. In the first one, you're not getting out of your 20s. You're doing, she's like, I see you. Where like in in a um, in a limousine, doing a ton of cocaine, and she said, kind of almost like Elvis, you're gonna die in your late twenties. And she said, but the other path, it's like so full of light. She's like, you start a healing path in your twenties. I don't even know what these words necessarily mean so much, like healing path. You know, a little bit of yoga, but um, and then she goes, in your thirties, you become a teacher. Um, in your forties, you become like a master healer and it's up to you which path you're going to choose. Dude, I got irate when you talked about anger in, in your story and in the precursor to your story, I was like, and I was so angry. I was so angry and I don't even know why, but when I got home, I told my roommates I needed to go out to dinner by myself that night because I just needed some time to clear my mind. And so I go out to eat and I'm sitting in this restaurant by myself, Brian, where there's just like random little hodgepodgey signs. It's one of these like kind of like folksy, folky kind of like decor places. And like, I don't know if you ever have one of these moments where it feels like gravity takes your eyeballs and like whooshes them to a spot. <laughs> and I'm like, and I go right to this spot. My eyes go right to it. And it says, Elvis Ave. And in that moment, I took a deep breath and I was like, okay. And all of a sudden I started hearkening back to even being a kid and having psychic experiences, being really sick as a little, little kid and learning pranayama and visualization and all these things, all these latent things that it had been buried. And it, and, and it caught me a little bit before I probably would have ended up in a treatment center, it kind of derailed me. And I went full on everything I had, yoga, 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 yoga. And I couldn't imagine the path that unfolded from that. And I'm so grateful. I'm grateful to, to share um, a story and, and brotherhood with you too. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, it's, it's neat because one thing I'll, I'll share with with those I've been teaching for a while, I, I know you've been teaching a while, and, and sometimes some younger teachers or newer teachers will ask for advice, especially working in the, the field of, of mental health or substance abuse. How do you work in a treatment center? How do you work with this population? And I'll share, because the question I get most often asked is, do I have to be an alcoholic or in recovery or sober to, to work in a treatment center? And I said, I usually most often say no. But you should be able to identify. So 
if you're going to work with with people who have had a lot of issues with with whatever it might be, make sure that you've also done your own inner work and you can identify. So you may not also you may not be able to identify the level of drug addict or alcoholic, but when they talk about not knowing their path or not knowing what they want to do with their life, it really helps if you have some experiential knowledge of what that feels like. And it, it always comes back to that where we can always identify there. So it's neat because, um, you know, having conversations, sharing stories, they don't have to match up at the detail level. You know, we'll yeah. never match up there. Like I drank vodka. Oh, I drank whiskey. Oh, I did Coke. Oh, I did heroin. We'll never match up there. But as soon as we get to the place where I was at the fork on the road, I was right there with you. Mm-hmm. I was right there with you looking at the Elvis sign even though I right. wasn't there. And it's, that's why I love when you mentioned story, circling back that ideas is, I think that's how we usually connect in, well, yoga with recovery. Um, we're all just telling our story. I think we all have the same story. That's maybe a whole different topic. Uh, the mm. details just change. We're all just mm-hmm. living the same, you know, human drama. <laughs> it's so true. Um, and I want to get into all that with you. I, I, this is, I mentioned to you before we got on air that, um, you know, I have some questions for you that kind of come in with, and that we are we're actually want I want to get into that sort of universality of the of the process, if you will. But I want to I wanted to backtrack, and I think that you know, for people that listen that maybe don't have a background in in yoga, and you know, there's all the there's such a loaded term. Like, what is what what's yoga? What does this like stretching thing have to do with anything or whatever they might hold? All the different preconceptions and I think it's such a beautiful question to to ask, like, what does the word yoga or the practice of yoga even more so, like, what does that mean to you? And and I'm not, I guess I'm not really looking for so much like a textbook definition um, or anything like that that you could find in any and anywhere else, other than like maybe from like the inside of you, like whether that's in practice or. Um, when you're teaching and it's like the channel opens, it's coming through. There's a felt sense of presence that's hard to put into words. But maybe when you're like, you know, you're sitting there and the and the room is in Shavasana and it's like this wave of like, holy fuck, like <laughs> in, in the most beautiful sense of um, realize if I'm using vulgarity, that might cheapen that, but um, <laughs> but to me, that's one of the highest expressions. And it's just like the sense of getting to, and you see in, in like, almost like a time lapse, your own journey and the, and, and in the space, especially within teaching inside of treatment centers and supporting people's recovery journeys and what it means and how, how like thinking of that moment of your mom crossing into that great mystery and, and your and just like, it's also like powerful and, and, and profound. And, and, and so even though it is ineffable in a certain sense, I would love to just kind of feel into how you hold and experience and carry this, the richness of this tradition, this practice of yoga, what it means to you. Great question. Thank you. Yeah, and that actually circles back. Originally, when you asked about my story, you did mention yoga, and so we'll pick up there. Um, I first took yoga, I think, sometime in college, 
and it was part of a uh, fitness class. It was uh, it was an easy credit. I was trying to, I was trying to get out of school. <laughs> I, was, I needed an early uh, an elective, an easy uh, elective, and I took a class that was called low impact aerobics. Uh-huh. And part of that class, the teacher threw in some yoga. And so for me, yoga, my introduction was this goofy, stretchy, weird, flexible, bendy, balanced thing with me and two other guys in the back of the room and about 20 uh, young women practicing in front of us. And that was yoga. It was this class at the gym at the university. And I didn't think much else about it until uh, I. it was offered in – I was living in New York City around 2000 five uh there was a gym in the basement of the building where i lived and there was yoga there and for whatever reason i went down there and i didn't know much about it except that my recollection was oh yeah that stretchy class at the university where i got that easy credit but i felt called literally to go down there to go in the elevator down to that that level you know um Mm. and i took the class and it was actually by accident i went there uh to work out it was a gym with a little fitness room and the manager i haven't thought of this in a long time the manager of the gym the night i went was actually an accident that i took the class because the yoga teacher was sitting next to him i didn't know who she was i didn't know she was a teacher and i just finished working out and he says he says are you going to take the yoga class and i said something like hell no why would Mm. i do that (laughs) and he he has this look on his face, and then I look at his face. I look at the face of the woman and sitting next to him. I said, you're the yoga teacher, aren't you? She goes, yeah, I am. And I just got egg on my face. I just thought, oh, geez. Um, I said, sure, why not? I'll try it. I was stuck. You know, I got caught. Mm-hmm. So I took the class, and it was just really nice because at that time, I was drinking a lot. I wasn't sober yet. And for that hour, I wasn't in my head. And I was hooked. Mm-hmm. So what I got from this this practice was a reprieve. I got a a time out from the from the the manic thinking, the the the, the racing mind, the the in, incessant type of uh paranoia, anxiety, whatever was in my head on any given day living in New York City at the time. I I got a break. It was the the volume on the radio station inside my head turned down. <laughs> yeah. And like I New thought York City was in your head. What's that? It sounds like New York City is in your head. Yeah. The Vritti's return. Yeah, it was inside my head. It was outside my head. It was noise everywhere. And this yoga class uh, shut down the noise. And so it was on Thursday nights, I still remember, and I went every Thursday. And uh, years later, I would pick it up again in Los Angeles. I had moved, um, and I was doing classes at a park outside in Los Angeles, there were teachers that had created this um, outdoor free or donation-based offering for anyone who wants to come. And I didn't have much money. And for me at the time, it was just a a place to go, to be around community, to be around other people, even though I wasn't yet ready to be part of any kind of community at the time. I wasn't yet sober. I was still very introverted. I was still very in my own place mentally. And, and But for that one hour, again, I got a chance to kind of feel part of the world, feel part of what I thought most normal people 
must do this kind of thing, right? They must hang out together, do classes together, go hiking, do have fun together. And I did yoga every day. That was uh, a morning class, Monday through Friday. And so back to your question, I was starting to realize, well, this yoga thing is cool, meaning it's more than just stretching. It's more than balance poses. It's more than a physical discipline. It's a kind of a mix of a thing that's, I didn't yet know what meditation was. I wasn't meditating yet, but it was, I was starting to find what that was without knowing what to call it. It was this moving form of stillness, looking deeply, meditation, contemplation. It was a place for me to really just stay put in a safe place and take the inner journey. And then once I got sober, a couple months into my sobriety, the veil was lifted. I'm doing yoga and my magic carpet yoga mat just started to allow me to transcend space and time. And I was, I was off, uh, off just on the journey. The difference now was I had the, the clarity. My mind was clear. I was sober now. Yeah. And so I was really receiving the practice full on. There was no filter. There was no, there was nothing in between me and the truth of the practice. And so I started to find that the philosophy, uh, Everything behind yoga, for me personally, it started as a physical practice. It was very physical power yoga, ashtanga yoga, vinyasa flow, and I really got into that. And then at the same time, I was also really responding to the yin and the restorative and the gentle. And I was responding very well. Uh, I was very open to the philosophy. I was, I was desperate and in need, very hungry for a new type of philosophy, a new way of, of thinking. And the teachers that I was taking classes with at the time here in Los Angeles in, in the LA area, I got really lucky. There were a lot of great teachers who not just not only taught good physical classes, but they imparted wisdom. They were sharing the moral codes. They were sharing the self-discipline. They were sharing from the Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita, the Yoga Sutras. They were sharing uh, Sufi poetry from Rumi and Hafiz and uh, Mary Oliver, even modern poets. They were just layering it in, but in a very fluid way where we're doing yoga, we're learning stuff, we're thinking about stuff, I'm crying, I'm laughing, everything's starting to happen. And uh, I became a teacher by accident. <laughs> it's... um. Osmosis. Yeah. And so it, it became a huge part of my recovery. And I share often when I, I teach at the treatment center that the reason I'm teaching and the reason I still practice, I'm still a practitioner. I still practice yoga. I was doing it last night on my living room floor, uh, 20 or so minutes. My daughter was right next to me. We were actually talking at the same time. My practice has morphed and changed so many different ways. It's fun when a little kid's talking to you while you're doing yoga. <laughs> um, What's that? How old is your daughter? Oh, she's nine now. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. So she she was playing with something next to me. I'm doing yoga. But the practice, it just, um, it's shifted and changed over the years. Uh, but becoming a teacher, that's what I was talking about, was a mm -hmm. complete accident. Uh, because my practice was such a huge part of my recovery, it was the place where I was able to really process the stuff that I was hearing in 12-step meetings. It was the safe place that allowed me to kind of understand what that speaker was talking about. Because when everything's happening in real time, it's a lot to take in. You'll hear people in meetings, whether it's recovery meetings, uh, whether it's 12-step, whether it's a spiritual group, whether you're going to start to hear a lot of stuff and a lot of people are sharing, it, which is great, but it's a lot to take in at once. So my yoga mat, I really started to personally 
internalize the stuff that I had heard that morning at the meeting. And I started to really think about the stuff I was talking about with my therapist that afternoon. My map became the place where I, it was my science experiment, where I really started to do my own work. And I had a teacher who I believe was noticing this. I was taking her class at the local gym. And one day she said to me, she said, you're going to be a teacher one day. Mm-hmm. And, and I said something like this. I said, that's that's the stupidest thing I ever heard. Why did you say that? <laughs> As if she insulted me or something, right? Mm-hmm. Like that was, how dare you, uh, you know, tell me I'm going to do something like that. I just didn't know what else to say. It was just a, an old sort of knee-jerk reaction to, you know, being sarcastic, being cynical, just not being able to face the reality. And uh, and then I became a teacher. It wasn't too long after that where I, that felt like the next right thing. I was getting so much from the practice. And if I thought if I can share any of what I've been able to receive in a way that's going to allow others to also find ways to heal and transform their lives, then that's being of service. And that's that's one of the things that a lot of people in recovery, we, we try to do every day. We try to 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 be of service. It's the same thing in yoga. It's it's part of the yoga tradition as well. You know, selfless mm-hmm. service. And I made a promise. I made a vow when I got sober that I would try to help others, and in a way that was authentic and organic and natural and creative for me. I, I'm not going to go and be a doctor. I'm not a doctor, but yoga felt like something that was so natural. It was so easy. And I had another teacher. She saw this in me. She said, "You're going to be a teacher." And I had to trust that, and I started to teach. And then it started off with with classes in the gyms and studios, and then I started doing outside outdoor classes for free because I remembered how beneficial, how how amazing that was that 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 group in the park in L.A. had set that up. So I tried to do the same thing. I did that for people in recovery at different places. I've done it outside in different parks. I still do that to this day whenever I can. Offer free donation based classes so those who don't have money don't feel like practicing in a studio or just not in the right place to to get to where everyone else seems to be doing yoga um come practice with us and um yeah it's been it's been a neat journey really truly amazing thank you again for for sharing that piece and there's that you brought up so many things i want to touch into and also just share i mean it's so funny the some of the parallels, um, a similar thing with a teacher and the nudge. And, and, and I, I remember I walked in, she was talking to somebody, um, Rebecca Keene. So if you ever listen to this, Rebecca Keene, we don't, we're not, we're not in touch anymore, but, um, she, you know, every Monday night, go take yoga, yoga basics. And, um, and, and, and I always have such an appreciation for those, sort of local classes, you know, cause sometimes like that famous teacher swoops through for the weekend, which is beautiful. There are some, some of my most, the teachers I'm most grateful for in my life are, are very well-known teachers, but there's something about that teacher that's just showing up after work to teach the class on Monday, you know, and at the local studio and it's just, or in the park. And it's like so much healing happens in the consistency and the safety that is bred through the presence of those practices and the people that have just come through it in a similar way. And anyway, I walk in one night to class and 
she's talking to somebody and she sees me come in. She, I just said, Hey, and she went to introduce me and she said, Scott's a dedicated yogi. And I was like, I shuddered. I literally, (laughs) I like, I don't, I'm not comfortable with the titles and, you know, and, and, and I didn't even understand, like, I didn't understand anything. It was so, so in like the nascence of it all. And, um, and, but, but I, I, there was a, like a Walgreens down the street. And I remember one day I got there early, I went to Walgreens and I, I got a blank thank you card and I just wrote on the inside of it. Thank you. Thank you for um, helping me learn how to become still with myself. And, and I just gave her that. And then, you know, all these years later, you know, again, like I said, I lost touch with her, but um you know, this was in 2000, 1999, 2000, something like that. And so in about maybe 2019, 2020, I'm not sure now, um, I, through a mutual friend, um, found her email and she connected me with her. And I just said, I, you know, I probably don't remember me, um, (laughs) but um, you really like, it's hard to talk about it right now without crying, man. Like, like saved my life. And, and, and I just want to say thank you. And you know, since then I went, I opened a donation based studio. Um, not now we do on sliding scale with drop-ins and stuff too, but for 10 years ran solely with like a, a jar um, and, you know, teacher trainings for 15 years and all the things, you know, and like, just, wow, like the whole life came from like her grapes in so many ways. And, and also that blow off college class elective. Um, and, and so I just said, you know, I just, I don't think I would have the life I have if it weren't for you. And I just want you to know that. And thank you. And she sends me back an email a few days later and says, of course, I remember you. I have the card that you wrote me in my math bag. And I read it before every class I teach to this day. And dude, I was just like, we don't know. Like it's, it's not just it's, that it's my story or her story or your story. It's like, we're like, like, thank you so much to this tradition because, you know, like most of us, like and for our listeners, like Brian and I actually grew up, we did grow up on the same street, pretty much. We grew up in the same neighborhood and, you know, um, you know, we didn't have this practice growing up and, you know, most of our generation didn't. And, you know, and there wasn't the internet and there wasn't all these things. It was, there was a lot of isolation and not a lot of tools and, um, and to be the grace to have found our way through trials and tribulations to a healing path that is ancient to receive it as such, to receive it as a sacred inheritance from our ancestors, to let it touch us in such a way that offers salvation and from suffering and offers meaning and connection to self and, and to support the, that, that innate bija, that, 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 that seed to open. And it's such a, it's such a gift. Um, and so when that call to share happens, it seems almost organic, like, how can I not, like, how can I feel this look around, see what's happening in this world and not want to share. Not that everybody's called to teach in some way, but I don't think it always shows up in the form of teaching. I think this podcast, your book, like our conversations, you sitting with your daughter, you know, like these are all ways of extending 
the gifts of these practices. And I, and, and I think it's, it's powerful to say thank you to our teachers. It's powerful to be in gratitude to the, to the transmission that's flown through, <laughs> traveled through cultures and centuries and millennia to, to land here in our laps. It's, it's an absolute, you know, maybe the greatest gift of, of, of my life in a sense, because I don't think I would be present to the other gifts that are the greatest gifts, like, like being a father. And, you know, like, I, I don't know that I would be the version of me that I am for my children without this practice. So incredibly grateful um, for all of it. And um, so that said, um, thank you for this connection. It's beautiful unfolding. Um, I, I want to pick up on a piece, um, you know, you shared about your love of, of philosophy um, the, the, the books, the studies, the, the, but, but also the, the practice, the, the quieting down of, of the, 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 the internal Manhattan, the, um, <laughs> the, I, I, so I want to ask, like, how do you hold like addiction? What is addiction to you through the lens of yogic and or Buddhist philosophy? Yeah, I'll actually pick up where I left off earlier. I was thinking as you were sharing that, um, oh, and thank you for sharing about the gratitude for our teachers. You reminded me of a couple of times where I've reached out to uh, former uh, previous past teachers just to say thank you, just to let them know, like, had I not met you, I wouldn't be. It, it really is. And I'm not, you know, asking any student I've ever had. To, I don't, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, yeah, not, I'm not begging for, uh, you know, thank you cards. Uh, it makes it's it, it's a it's an energy exchange of gratitude and um i've done that as well and uh i even i'll just share this piece since we're talking about that so the teacher who told me i was going to be a teacher it changed my life so drastically about a year into teaching i was actually curious why she said that so i, I reached out to her and we've stayed in touch to this day so i i still she owns a studio um meditation studio and she's still teaching and uh, so i called her about a year into my teaching and I said, I've got to ask you something. I'm really curious. And she nearly cut me off. She goes, why are you going to be a teacher? She almost <laughs> knew what I was going to say. I said, yeah. Why did you say that? She goes, I don't know. I just knew I was supposed to tell you that. She said, I've never told any other student that up until now. You, you, I just knew I was, for some reason, I, was, I just felt I was supposed to tell you that. I said, do you have any idea how that completely changed the trajectory of my life? And she said, yeah, funny, isn't it? And it just blew me away. Like that tiny moment in time, completely like two asteroids knocking in outer space, a tiny little bump will just knock them in completely different directions. That's what happened because she moved. She moved not long after. It was just this little moment in time. We just happened to be in the same little studio, same little town. She said this thing, and then boom, she moved. And I thought that completely changed. And I've had a few teachers like that. And it's really neat to um, to to maybe I'm just a, a you know a, a, a detective. I just I'm like, why did you say that? What happened? What really happened there? And there's no explanation except what she said, which was, I felt called to share that with you. I don't know where it came from, but just be grateful. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but, yeah, mm -hmm. but back back to yoga. You mentioned I, I was going to add this piece that yoga today is. Um, I shared how I got into yoga and what it was back then, quieting the mind. More today, it it is a way of being on and off the mat. 
I wanted to add that piece because for me, yoga is not just when I'm either practicing or teaching. So it's not just for 60 minutes in the morning at a studio. It's it's at, when I'm at the grocery store, I'm a yogi. When I'm when I'm at the gas station, I'm practicing. When I'm picking up my daughter from school or talking to her teacher at, at a meeting, I'm in my practice. I realized, you know, we have principles and, and moral codes and self-disciplines that talk about being authentic and honest and, 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 and basically living a purposeful, meaningful life. I can't turn it off. If, if I'm going to live this life, it has to be full go, 100%, all or nothing. There's no shortcut. There's no back door where I get to be a yogi, a person in recovery, and then just give me an hour to go be a jerk over here. Let me just go curse at this person, then I'll come right back and be peaceful and loving for you. And so I I realized long ago, if you're going to go down this path, you got to go. You got to go all the way, no turning back. There's a great line in the Bible where it says, uh, the man who puts his hand to the plow and turns back is not worthy of the kingdom of heaven. So if you're going to go the path, all or nothing. You got to go for it. Don't hesitate. Don't doubt yourself. Don't doubt the path you're on. Just keep going. And so that's what I've been doing. So it, it really is a way of being. I'm not perfect at it. It's not a perfect. It's a, it's a practice. So each day I practice. I practice focusing on my breath, meditating. I practice speaking kindly to others, listening with compassion. So it, it's really become not so much the asana, the poses, these days, for me personally, it's been more of the philosophy, which will lead me into what you just asked about. It's been more of how do I actually uh, exemplify yoga as a father, as a neighbor, as a friend, as an uncle, as, as a person in the world? How am I a yogi? And um, so it really has become something I wear, like like my recovery. Uh, it's it's just yeah. who I am now, and, and it it's on and off the mat in and out of meetings. Um, so the way that I look at recovery, I think that was the question, through the lens of yoga and yoga philosophy. Um, it's interesting because when I got sober, I didn't know anything about recovery. I didn't know the difference if there was one between sobriety, recovery. I didn't know the difference if there was one between spirituality or religion. I had nothing. Uh, in, when I was reading, studying, in my 20s or so, it was the Beat Generation. It was Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, William S. Burroughs, Hunter S. Thompson. I was into those guys, those rebels, Ernest Hemingway, those those guys who were just womanizers and drunkards and crazy. And that was my only experience with studying literature. Mm-hmm. And then I get sober and I'm reading these books about spiritual mm-hmm. concepts. And then I'm reading, as part of my first yoga teacher training, it was suggested we read a few of these books. And I went through the Upanishads in three days, and I told a friend of mine who was a teacher, he goes, wait a second, what? <laughs> he goes, you just read the Upanishads in three days? I said, yeah. Okay. <laughs> For those who don't know, it's a, like you mentioned, there are these little stories, little life stories, but it's, I wouldn't suggest to anyone today to go that fast, to not take it in, to, to settle, to relax, maybe take one story a day, one half a story a day, really think about it. But that's where I was. Uh, these days, I, I really sit with, with the things that I work with, that, that I read. Um, so the lens of yoga in relation to recovery, uh, I did study, I did read, and I still read and I still study, and Buddhism as well. A lot of Buddhist teachers have showed up in my life, um, writers, authors, uh, uh, Dharma teachers I've met, 
And so it gave me a very uh, full, fuller view of what recovery can be. So when I got sober, I was just going to 12-step meetings. So my idea of recovery was, okay, work the steps, read this book, go to meetings, which is great, and it works fine. And But I was also really into yoga, so I was taking those teachings and realizing there's a lot of parallels, and there's quite a few similarities, if not these teachings are, 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 are synonymous. So talking about being of service and recovery, they're talking about being of service in yoga. Why don't I just go ahead and just be of service? And so I started to realize that there's, for me personally, there was no difference between recovery or yoga. Uh, it doesn't make sense to to try to separate them for me. It's, again, who I become. It's who I be. Uh, I get to be um, a yogi in recovery. So the, the yoga piece is... It's not uh, for me again. This is all just you know my personal experience. I know there are people who can quote you know scripture and give you lines and memorize things. I can do some of that, but for me, it's more of a felt experience. You know, do I do I feel okay today? Do I feel calm? Is my mind quiet? When we look at the Yoga Sutras, you know, now yoga begins. Yoga is a quieting of the mind, cessation of thought. That works for me. I don't have to go and read that much more today. Like I'll just work on those first two lessons, those first two sutras. So now yoga begins. Now the teachings of yoga. Mm-hmm. Yoga is a cessation of thought, a quieting of the mind. Okay. And then I start to figure out there's no difference. If my mind is quiet and I can be present in the now, I'll be sober. I'll be in recovery. That's a very powerful tool for recovery. Present moment awareness quieting the mind, train the mind. How do we do that? Well, you could focus on your breath. You can use a mantra. There's a whole, we're talking about the sutras. You can go flip through there. You pick anything in there that's going to help you get to those two things, present moment, mm-hmm. quieting of the mind. Um, I think it's very powerful. It may not work for everybody, but it definitely worked for me. And I know a lot of people where it's it's very useful. Um, the, the, the yoga scriptures that that seem to make sense to me, they focus on universal, timeless, eternal themes uh, and ideals that uh, span across time and space, across the globe. It doesn't matter if Jesus said it or Buddha said it or Krishna said it or, or, or Muhammad said it or Abraham or Moses. They're all talking about love. Let's just meet there. So that's what I'm starting to find when I, the more I go into the yoga scriptures is, is not so much the characters in the story. They do matter to me personally, but they may not to someone. But what are they really talking about? They're talking about death. We can all relate to death in that story. Mm-hmm. Well, let's just talk about that. What does death mean to you? And then we can, well, what's this story talking about? Life. Well, we can all talk about life. Let's meet there. Mm-hmm. And so I've noticed that a lot of the yoga teachings are about these essential themes. That if you're a human being, if, if you're listening, you probably are. Uh, you're going to have to brush up against these things, these these uh, principles, these spiritual principles, life, death, hope, honesty, courage, integrity, faith, uh, spirituality. And so recovery and yoga for me, it's just, I feel like I'm doubly blessed. Some people just have one mode or one way of looking at stuff. 
for whatever reason, I guess my higher power decided, I think Brian needs a couple different ways to look at this stuff. He's, <laughs> it takes him a while. He's a little slow sometimes. So let's give him a couple different uh, uh, kaleidoscopes to look through, you know, a couple filters here. Let's give him the yoga stuff. Let's give him the recovery stuff. Hey, let's throw in the Buddhist stuff because he's into that kind of thing. And uh, let's give him a little bit of the Bible too. I think he likes Jesus. And, and so, yeah, I think the more of this stuff, the better. Um, mm. Not even just limited to just recovery and yoga, but whatever else aligns with that. And it works, especially if someone's trying to stay in recovery. Whatever works for you, do it. And the cool thing is if it's authentic, if it's original, if it feels right to you and it's healthy and beneficial and wholesome, you don't have to explain that to anybody. Just live it. Do it. They'll see it on you and they'll want what you have. They'll go, hey, why are you always so peaceful? What are you doing? You'll say, oh, I was reading this uh, book by Thich Nhat Hanh. Who's he? Oh, he's a Zen master. He's a Buddhist monk. He passed away a couple of years ago. Which book? Peace is Every Step. Okay, I'm going to check that out. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Because they're going to watch the way you walk. And they're going to go, why are you walking so slow and mindful? I read this book. <laughs> it's called Pieces Every Step. Yeah. It's, it's wild how when we carry it in our presence, it's not something that needs to be, you know, pushed out from us, you know, in, in that way. And I had a teacher who taught me this, and it's been kind of a mantra for me personally, and it's, um, when a when a flower begins to produce pollen, it doesn't need to send an invitation to the bees. And that was just such a powerful statement that just even the idea of like emitting the the the, the fragrance, the the energy, the transmission, and and it's and it's really your it's it's serving you, it's serving everyone just by being and. I'm I'm really touched by a couple of things that you shared. If I can go back into uh, some of your share, which was really quite beautiful, and I appreciate the the sentence. Let's meet there. Let's meet there, and it's finding these spaces that are universal to our humanness that don't require philosophical debate or, um, you know, and, and, and just finding that common ground where we all share an experience of humanity. And, and then from that space, we can explore so much, but could that be the starting place from which we meet ourselves and we meet each other? And then the diversities and, and that, that sort of kaleidoscopic variegatedness that unfolds out of that because it's not severed from the fundamental sameness it's it's actually not so threatening. It's actually like, oh wow, that's a beautiful way to be, or that's a powerful way to share that or see that. And it it actually the diversity starts to inspire us rather than threaten us. And and so I think there's there's room for that in in our world right now. There's room for us and in, in for to start going a little deeper to not a superficial sameness where we're avoiding the charged topics, you know, but where we're, we're rooting so far down into the, the deepest part of me is we, there is a shared root and we could call the turning towards that a yoking with our essential nature, which, and another word for that would be that we are recovering 
our essential nature. In a sense, it never left us, but maybe at the level of perception, we've deviated away from that through the inculcation of culture and the the imprints of of experience. Um, And so, yeah, to the second point that I wanted to touch back into is maybe recovery is the ultimate synonym for yoga. Yeah, I, I I looked it up once. I, I I got into the habit of looking in the dictionary to really figure out what I was talking about as a teacher when I was getting sober, what I meant as a sponsor when I was helping other guys in twelve step recovery. Like, let's really figure out semantics. Let's look at the language. Let's, if we're going to really talk about this stuff, so what does recovery mean? And I looked it up, and it meant to make new again, to return to a state of wholeness, to uh, return to a state of health. And I thought, yeah, just like you said. That's what we're doing. We've strayed so far from our natural state. We're so far from our default settings, the factory settings that we came with that were actually whole mm-hmm. and complete and running perfectly fine. We got a lot of viruses, a lot of stuff kind mm-hmm. of seeped in and infiltrated our hardware. We got to recover. We got to come back to our natural state, hit the reset button. And for a lot of us, it's getting rid of all the stuff that doesn't belong there. It's all the, the whether it's cultural, whether it's societal, whatever got in the way. We have to, so recovery for me personally, I've heard this. I didn't make this up, but I heard someone share this. It's a, um, it's not a process of addition. It's a process of subtraction. We don't have to add anything to who we are to get sober. It's not like you need this, you need this, you need this, you need this. You actually, if any, if you need anything, you need to remove this, remove this, remove this. Not as easy as it sounds, especially if it's removed the abandonment issues, remove the rejection, remove the rejection, the the sexual trauma, remove the. It's it's not that easy to subtract those things, but it is possible to start to recover your whole self, your healthy self. Um, it's an interesting thing. It's like an uncovery, and it's it's um. Yeah, I always think of it as like, it's not acquisitive, but inquisitive. And it's, it is that, and I think that's to go back to what you're saying earlier, that maybe the power of these yin restorative nidra practices is they're, they're peeling off the habituated sense of doership, that in those moments of stillness, there's that intervening presence in our nature that says, what am I supposed to do with this? Where am I supposed to go? What's my goal? And it confronts that tendency in a way that also fills it with an inner attitude of compassion and friendliness towards all that arises. And we, so are once in this sort of um, in encountering with a part of ourself that is, is uncomfortable and doesn't yet know itself in, in the deepest sense. So it's looking to like outsource itself to what can I have? How fast can I get there? Um, what do I believe? All these places to establish identity anywhere outside of whether you call it self, soul, emptiness, Buddha nature, you know, just the great mystery of what we are. And it's funny because a lot of these paths, you know, they don't, I try not to homogenize them in the sense that I don't think they're saying the same thing about the answer of what we are. That's like sort of cloaked in the, in the, behind the veil of mystery, but there's a lot of agreement about what we're not. There's a lot of coming to the same sense of uh, I'm not the part of me that gets attached to needing to outsource my worth or my wholeness or my capabilities. Um, and, and so 
in that um in that sense of coming back to like what I really am, I wanted to get your perspective on something maybe a little bit more specific. Um, And maybe this touches into that. Are they saying the same thing or is it different? But I'm curious, you said um, a sentence, it's who I am. And so when we, when I hear the sentence, it, it like definitely brings me into a sense of like where I place identity and knowing that like when that, like in the yogic sense, they talk about the kleshas and like the root forgetting of one's own nature. The avidya is sort of the the, the sort of causative agent in, in the generation. Or And I don't see this as a necessarily chronological thing as in it happened once a long time ago, but in the perpetuation of the cycle of, of personality or ego and then into our attachment aversion cycles, et cetera. Um, but this sort of beginning, this 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 in the, this this core piece of for self forgetting, if recovery in yoga is self remembering, in in terms of the yogic disciplines and their interaction with, say, a system like twelve step, where when I put an I am statement like I am Scott and I am an alcoholic. How does that, how do you navigate the nuances of taking accountability, um, ownership, giving voice to and naming um, something that's like really been a struggle, um, but without collapsing self-identity into it? Um, I've seen a lot of people struggle with that piece where it's like, if they've been in 12-step for a long time. And then there's a feeling of like, um, it, there's something in that piece maybe. And I'm kind of coming to this from the outside and I'm curious. So I'm asking like that, that, that it might seem like it, it could be in the, in the interpretation of it. Um, but yeah, how do you hold that? Is that something that you reconciled and how do you support people with holding true to like essential nature while honoring the conditioning as well? something that came to mind was both recovery and yoga are an inner journey. We've all heard in the yoga world, yoga is a journey of the self, through the self, to the ultimate self. And like we talked about, recovery is coming home, recovering your ultimate self, like the onion. You've got to keep going layer by layer. And when you get back to that innermost self, the atma, whatever you want to call it, the Buddha nature, the Christ consciousness, the God within... There's there's no more pretending. There's no more need to wear uh, uh, an ego. There is no ego anymore when you're there. There's no labels, and it's neat because we've we've most of us have seen documentaries or read books about people who have achieved that state. And it's funny because whether or not they want to call themselves man, woman, alcoholic, sober person, there's no more attachment. So in yoga, we talk a lot about non-attachment, Buddhism as well, and many other traditions. There's no attachment. So I know a lot of people in recovery that have some time sober who no longer choose or desire to say, my name is so-and-so, I'm an alcoholic, because they don't feel they're alcoholic anymore. Mm -hmm. Uh, My personal take on that is um, the attachment to it. I think that's something that you need to look at. Why does it matter if someone calls you man, old, young, rich, poor, healthy, sick, these labels? So I personally don't. If someone wants to say, you're an alcoholic, sure. Are you a sober alcoholic? Sure. 
Are you a sober father? Sure. Whatever you need to call me, whatever category you need to put me in, whatever box you think I belong in, go for it, because I'm going to continue to be who I am regardless. Um, when I call out myself first, it actually takes the power out of it. So if I already tell you I've, I'm a recovered alcoholic, you can't hurt me with that. So the name doesn't mean anything to me. It's funny because it's the one thing. It's not funny, but I, I've been around long enough where it's interesting. I'll, I'll use that term. It's interesting when people have a problem with step one, since we're talking about uh, the 12-step process. Step one, we admit powerlessness. We're asked to admit powerlessness. And a lot of people balk right there. No way. I'm not powerless. And the, 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 the funny thing for me is if we can find a way to somehow humble ourselves to realize we're not all powerful, Maybe we do have a little bit of an issue, and, and maybe we are powerless in some way to this thing, whatever it is. Most people don't realize that if you can admit powerlessness, that's the exact moment you become empowered because you're no longer a slave to the label, to the identity of being a victim to this thing. When you finally say, you know what, alcohol, you kicked my butt, you got me. Guess what? I'm free. The shackles are off. Because now I've opened myself up to a power so much greater than alcohol or drugs or anything else. Now I've opened myself up to something, whatever you want to call it. Step two, we lead to a higher power. So whether it's through the yoga tradition, whether it's through a deity, a goddess, an avatar, whatever, you are now open because you have claimed that for yourself. So as far as calling myself this or that, I gave that up a while ago because I was having issues with that. Like, but I'm not an alcoholic. I, I'm in recovery. I'm a recovered alcoholic, or I'm in, I'm recovering, and we're getting into semantics. And back to what you shared, if we can meet at the level of emotion or feeling, none of these words are going to really matter to a lot of us. If we go to the place of, let's say, if I said, "Has anyone here today ever been angry?" I'm sure every hand's going to go up. Okay, has anyone here ever been sad? Every hand will probably go up. Why we got angry or sad, that's going to change. Maybe I'm angry because somebody robbed me. Maybe you're angry because you dropped and spilled something that was valuable to you. It broke, it shattered. The details aren't really going to matter because we can meet at the level of anger, just like we can meet at the level of powerlessness. doesn't matter what you're powerless over or how powerless you think you may be. Let's just meet there. Because if we can meet there, and we can find the solution together there at the level of emotion, the subtle level of feeling. You can take the solution and use it for your thing. I'll take the solution and use it for my thing. Um, so it's funny when we start to play around with words and labels, when we actually use them instead of letting them use us, if that makes sense. So mm -hmm. I don't look at the label of alcoholic as a uh, a detriment or, a, a, you know, a... Uh, a black box on my resume. I, I don't look at it that way at all. It's just something that's part of my history, part of my story. And it's actually set me onto a path of productivity, purpose, meaning. This is the, 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 this is the life I've been destined to live. And it all started with being an alcoholic. It's the funniest thing. Sometimes people will share or ask me, uh, what's the best thing that's ever happened to you? And I've had some really amazing things happen. And sometimes my answer is, well, the best thing that ever happened, depending on the group that I'm talking to, is finding out that I was alcoholic. And most people are like, what? How is that the best thing that ever happened to you? And I'll say, well, when I 
adopted that term, when I decided to realize and claim and name and, and identify, give voice to something, when I finally realized I was an alcoholic, it led me to a place where I found people that could help me. They led me to a system of beliefs, a system of, of a foundation designed for living that helped me find a higher power of my own understanding that led me to find a way to get rid of anger and resentments and grudges and grievances, helped me learn to forgive and find a spiritual path, which led me to yoga, which led me to philosophy and Buddhism and other spiritual and religious traditions, which led me to be a decent person. It put me onto this path. If I look back, what started that whole thing was, oh, you're an alcoholic. Okay, go here. Mm -hmm. if i take that piece out the whole thing falls apart i wouldn't be here talking with you today it starts with me being an alcoholic so uh i wouldn't say i'm proud of that it's just it just is there's no way around it <laughs> it's 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 combustive in the most beautiful sense as this sort of like shiva destructive like in in the but being the auspicious one simultaneously. And it reminds me of almost like the archetype of a twin flame relationship. It's like alcoholism is like the twin flame that says like, I'm going to meet you here to break you down, to break you open and set you on your path. And it, and everything to go back to what you said prior to that, I want to say, thank you. I've asked this question um, to various people over the years, as I've just been in my own study and journey uh, an inquiry around the stories we tell ourselves and um, do they limit us? Do they open us? And that was a really exquisite way uh, and a really elegant way of sharing the, the labels and in a sense that lose their meaning, but that they might have a certain necessity at a particular time in the journey of alchemy that, that, that the moment that you admit powerlessness is the moment that you become empowered is a really, really powerful way of holding that. I hope that, um, that, that those who are joining and listening um, to this, if they're in this journey, that it's not just about substance abuse, that this is where we are all on a journey of recovering our authentic nature. And I think that's part of why we incarnated and why we incarnated together is that we are we are mirrors waking waking each other up and 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 that's just a beautiful way to share that teaching. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit in away from theory and into practice um, and and talk a little bit about in your book you talk about practices. So can we dive in a little bit to the embodiment work and the sort of the integration piece? Like, what does this actually look like? If I think we've done a pretty solid uh, job on, on speaking <laughs> from the 30,000 foot view of some of these things and then into the, like the deep, like underground element of like what's happening in the rawness inside of us. But in terms of putting this into what, how can I come into experiential relationship with these practices? What are the habits? What are the tools? If, and, and maybe starting from the, like, if I don't have a toolbox yet, where's a good place for me to start? I would suggest anyone who wants to heal their body, you can start there, go online and start to research and look at, there's plenty of maps and diagrams of where the body stores emotions and feelings. 
I find that just putting the bottle down, just putting the drugs down, just stopping the harmful behavior is the outer physical sobriety piece, but it doesn't heal. That's like a doctor. If you got a cut, he just puts a Band-Aid on it. But we have to figure out how you got the cut, what's going on. And if you got a stomach ache, if you just take an antacid, but it keeps – we have to figure out why you keep – we have to go inside. So just putting on the outer layer or just stopping the outer behavior, it's not going to last long. So when we figure out where the body stores, back to some physical practices, where is the body storing anger? Where is it storing sadness, loss, grief? If we can start to figure out where the body stores these things, we can access these areas, heal, harmonize, soften, relax these areas, so we can actually get into the subtle level where a lot of the, the root causes and conditions, the triggers and traumas live. I don't drink because I'm thirsty. I drink because I'm lonely and sad. So if I just put the bottle aside, I still have the loneliness and sadness. Unless I figure out figure out physically where I'm storing and holding that, and then emotionally why I'm still psychologically locked into feeling that way, I'm going to return to the bottle at some point. I'm going to drink again. So the physical practices help us get into the body so we can heal the body. And in the practice of yoga, as many people who practice know, you're on a mat. And it's like getting on an airplane. You can't decide mid-flight you want to get off and go for a walk. You're stuck. You're stuck on that plane. The cabin doors are closed. You need to stay put. Practice of yoga is very similar. You're on your mat. You made that commitment. You're, you're there. So do the work. Take the ride. Take the journey. And so some of the practices, once we figure out, when we look online, we get this map, we figure out, okay, let's say across the heart space, we store sadness, loss, grief. You can see this on somebody. Their chest is sunken in, their shoulders slump forward. Maybe someone they love just passed away. Maybe they're dealing with their own issues and they're just not able to figure it out. Their chest caves in. So if we start to figure out how to do some heart opening poses, if we start to figure out what, what the heart chakra the qualities inherent to this area, what they mean, we will be on our path toward healing. It's not going to take 25 years. It doesn't take living in a cave in India. You can do this work yourself. Um, You can look online. You can go to a local yoga studio. I mentioned this, and this is one of the things that I teach often because one of my teachers years ago, he said, teach what you know. This is what I know. This is how I healed myself. I can't pretend I don't I, I, I don't know it and I can't pretend I know something other than this. I healed my heart. I, I healed grief, sadness, loss. My lower back is where I had all my anger issues, things I couldn't forgive, grievances, grudges. So I figured out how to do some strengthening poses and, and movements for my lower back. In the hips, we store things like abandonment issues, rejection, betrayal. If your hips are locked up, you may want to look at that. You may want to look at doing some hip openers, figuring out how to loosen up your hips, finding the, the water element of the second chakra, finding a way to be fluid, be dynamic, be creative. It, 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 I promise it doesn't take long to figure this stuff out. I thought this was so esoteric, so weird. You needed a degree. It's actually pretty simple these days. When I was learning this, um, Google was around, <laughs> but there weren't so many. There were no podcasts. Like there weren't so many, so many people talking about this. Where we've normalized it in a very healthy way. When I, we were kids, it was always woo weird. That's woo woo. That's new agey. That's hippy dippy. That's like. You're a, you're a, you're crazy. Now it's yeah, of course it's trauma. Of course you need to heal. 
Of course you need to open your heart. Of course you need to get in touch with your inner child. That's why you're drinking. You were abandoned as a child. Of course. Let's look at that. And so the practices, um, some that are mentioned in the book, but just some that I teach each day when I work in treatment is let's get in touch with what's really going on behind the scenes here. It doesn't matter if you can physically do the pose. We don't have to do Instagram-worthy pictures here, poses. Do it your way. Modify it. Make it your own. Personalize it. Find a way that works for you. Because what we're really looking for in regards to healing is let's go inside. Let's open your heart. Let's relax your hips. Uh, Let's get into the throat chakra. I, you know, recently somebody said, I have so much, I have problems. I can't speak my truth. And we talked about the throat throat chakra, Mm -hmm. opening up your throat chakra. There's poses to do that. If, if somebody's listening, if you just want to look up at the ceiling or into the sky right now, that, that's, that will suffice. Open up your throat chakra. Self-identity, self-esteem, confidence, being able to speak your truth happens when your throat's open. When someone is, is quiet and mousy and, and lets other people speak for them, if you really look at them, their chin is pointed down and their shoulders are down and they don't have that much confidence. So physically, emotionally, there's no separating these things. So the physical postures we do, um, they are designed, I believe, to also heal emotionally. Um, to stabilize us mentally, psychologically as well. And then uh, my favorite part is the spiritual. It's it's the missing piece for many of us in recovery. Um, people think they can, you know, muscle their way into recovery. <laughs> yeah. Can, can you say, can you keep going with that piece? The spiritual? Yeah, in terms of the, like, maybe the missing piece in recovery and then linking to the, to the body. I mean, you know, we talk so much about, you know, for so so many of us, it's like the practice is limited to the body, and then it, it swings out to the it's, that's the superficial and da 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 da. And then we start to see. It's funny. I was just watching a Krishnamurti video the other day, and he was you know kind of dogging the physical practice for what he called a waste of energy and an exercise discipline, and the, and then the real yoga sort of was the spiritual side, and and kind of journeyed into that for a while and never left that it's just a a deeper recognition that the the ultimate healing includes the body and this is the beauty of you know we now we just call it somatic work or you know something like that but it it, you know the body keeps the score etc etc we're learning all these things and trauma tools and self-regulation and the importance of the nervous system and um, interoception and all these ideas of how, how healing trauma works. And here's this beautiful gift of, of asana that is actually the pinnacle in so many ways and, and, and a necessary component of healing uh, and integrating our trauma. And how do we come to communicate and, and integrate our our inner child and those parts that have been exiled off when we're not in tune to how that emotion has accumulated in the body, that it's largely a non-intellectual process. And so um, adding the, or at least not limited to an intellectual process, but adding the spiritual piece, but I was sort of visualizing it like a circle and like looping back around to the inclusion of the physical, but with a deeper 
intentionality infused into it as, as, as receptivity, as inquiry, as inhabiting the spaces and, and reventilating those spaces where there's this congestion of, of life that's stored in these different spaces. I'm thinking of even, even a practice like Yin where the meridians are connected to the particular connective tissue channels that, you know, touch into the organs and particular sets of emotions that give us maps to work with these things that it's not like we're like, we have a body and we have a mind and we have emotions, but we're, we're body minds that breathe and feel and are spirit in varying levels of frequency and vibration. And so, yeah, how do you hold, I guess there, that might be a two-parter, but like the relationship between the spiritual and physical, you know, even to put the word and is to see them almost as distinct. So it's got its own trapping. So that and then <laughs> I love the smile. <laughs> We're about to have fun. Here we go. So that and the spiritual piece to the recovery element. You said that's a piece that is, can, can largely be missing. Yeah. I, the spiritual piece, the fact that it was the missing piece, that was actually shared with me by a friend who was struggling for many years. And after I got sober, we talked. And he said... Um, you got it. I said, what do you mean? He goes, you got the part that I've been missing. I said, mm. "What? I don't know what you're talking about. He goes, the spiritual part. He said, I've been to five treatment centers. I can't get sober. And I think it's because I have what, what I can't find. And you seem to have it. The way you're talking and what you're talking about, I think the missing piece for me is the spiritual part. And it really... You know, everything got quiet for me when he said that. I didn't wasn't working toward that personally. I wasn't cultivating uh, spiritual knowledge. I was just trying to live my life and learn what I was supposed to learn and what felt like the next right thing. And I would just read this book or do this meditation or listen to this recording. But I had someone. When somebody tells you their truth, he's he's on the battlefield. He told me. I knew him. We grew up together. So when he said, I think the missing piece for me after his lived experience of being to one treatment center after another is the spiritual piece, I'm going to believe him. When someone tells me the truth and they've seen it and they've lived it, I'm going to believe that. And so I felt really grateful that for whatever reason, I was humble enough to start to think in a way that opened my perception to something called spirituality, which I had no idea. I mentioned earlier, I didn't know what spiritual was in regard to or relation to religion. I had no idea what the word meant. And I... I'm so glad I didn't because in my recovery and in my yogic journey, I've been able to make up my own definition for it. So spirituality for me is, it's one of those things like yoga. It would be such a conversation on any given day. My spirituality is being nice to my neighbor. It's uh, not yelling at somebody because they did something harmful to my child. That's my spiritual practice and action. It's, it's, it's a way of being ritualistic. Somebody pointed that out to me once years ago, that the word ritual is inside the word spiritual. So anything that's ritualistic to you can be spiritual. So if your morning ritual is praying, meditating, guess what? That's your spiritual practice because that's your ritual, right? It's in there. That's the word that's in there. I thought, that's great. I love that. But just make sure the rituals are positive, like journaling or meditating or praying or spiritual reading or doing yoga. Those will be spiritual practices. Um, and I also think spirituality shows itself in very ambiguous ways, like 
when that question came to me personally, what are you going to do with the time you have left on earth? That was not coming from my intellect. That was not cognitive. That was not me questioning myself. That came from spirit. That came from a place beyond explanation. When my teacher told me, you're going to be a teacher one day, and I even asked her, why did you say that? She said, I felt like I was supposed to tell you that. Nobody called her and said, tell Brian this. That came through her. To me, that's spirituality. That's being open to be a vessel, to be a channel, to be an instrument, to let something else move through you. What's moving through you? Who knows? Any given day, it could be anything. It could be love. It could be compassion. It could be a, a message from beyond. Um, so, the, the, so in regards to spirituality being the missing piece, and then how it ties into the physicality of yoga, uh, it's, it's, I was laughing because you said like the duality was set up. It's like physical or spiritual. I'm like, well, it depends yeah. on the day. <laughs> you know, when I'm in my body and I'm acting like a guy, and you know, and, and I'm a, you know, I, yeah, I'm a physical guy. I, you know, I, if I stub my toe, I'm gonna say, oh, ooh, ugh. I'm physical. You know, we're physical bodies. You know, it's. It might have been Deepak Chopra. He said we're spiritual beings having this physical experience. Um, so to me, they are. Uh, interrelated, they're interdependent. They can be separate things, but but most what works best for me is, you know, in the yoga tradition, we have these sheaths, these layers. We have the physical, we have the mental, we have the the pranic, we have what it, we have the spiritual. We have these different layers. They all go together. Um, I think what prevents anyone from uh, understanding and I this concept is an idea of what they think it is or what they want it to be. Spirituality is like water. It's like trying to figure out how the, the wetness of water. It just is. It's like the wave saying, I wish I could find some water. I'm thirsty. You are water. <laughs> you are spiritual. Um, I'm laughing because I'm just, I am recently shared that with someone. They're like, I like something about becoming worthy. And I was like, that's like, you know, like, water trying to like become wet or the idea that water could become unwet like right. this immutable property of our essence and knowing that which we are through as for those listening like the koshas right that all these layerings of self but not seeing them as compartmentalized components where it's i have a body it's almost i mean even if you look at your own body we say things like you have muscles and then you have tendons and you have bones when really you have one tissue that the muscle morphs into tendon and tendon morphs into bone. And there is no like glue the muscle to the tendon and then glue the, the tendon to the bone. It's literally one gradient. And if we were to extrapolate that out to the macro, we could go all the way back to whatever this whole thing is and see it's just one thing, this this idea that we can be individuated without being separated at any level of being. And it feels to me that to the degree that which I experience myself as being um, distanced from that root is equal to the degree of my suffering and then the degree to which I experience myself as being established in that route, I experience myself as all the virtues organically and immediately in great spontaneity without 
even necessarily a cultivation, almost just a falling away of what we're not reveals that which we are. So we don't have to become, to your point, of it's not an acquisitive and additioning, additional pra- process. It's it's a revealing of the wholeness that is already there. And there's something so empowering about that to me because it starts from the affirmation of truth instead of being something that is outside of us that we have to go attain in order to get somewhere that's so rife with the possibility of, of, of reinforcing the not enoughness, the separateness, the not there yet one day down the road process. Instead, let me remember that which is fundamentally true as often as I forget. And therefore the forgetting is a reminder to remember. And it's just like building a muscle. And so if I can just turn my forgetting into my remembering practice, I'm on my way into having a process that can support um, me turning to what is always already present. And so, so yes, I, I, I resonate with what you're sharing. Uh, thank you for sharing that. It's, it's neat to, um, to just keep this, dialogue open and and i just thought of something that these these the uh in regard to physical and spiritual these these they're identifiers as well they they can magnify amplify or even quantify uh what we talked about earlier universal qualities or principles for example there's physical courage then there's spiritual courage so physical courage means let's say i have a friend He's in a very dangerous situation and dangerous part of town. It's going to take some physical courage for me to get out of my car in that neighborhood and try to find him. And even though I'm scared, I'm physically going to walk around and try to find my friend because he's in trouble. That's physical courage. Spiritual courage is a lot different. Spiritual courage is same scenario, same situation, walking those same streets, knowing that my higher power will protect me. Hmm. No fear. Same situation, but two different perspectives. The physical idea, thinking like, "Well, yeah, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta muster up the courage here," as opposed to the the spiritual, which is, I trust the process. I say my prayers. It feels like the right thing to do. I will be guided. I will be protected. So these these qualities, courage, for example, can also be um, identified or looked at through that lens of the physical, mm-hmm. the mental, the emotional, the spiritual. And you start to see like, oh, wait a second. So even something like that can be divided, but not in a, in a, a dualistic way like, like we were you know, laughing about before. Uh, mm-hmm. They go together. You need both. You need the physical courage to drive to that neighborhood, but you also need the spiritual courage to check every block, knowing that you will be okay. Trust that you will be okay uh, without fearing. You can have fear. Fear is fine. Um, but if you have um, the spiritual courage to to know you you will be protected, it's a whole lot different than thinking, "Oh, I hope this works out." Mm. Uh, crossing your fingers and rubbing your lucky rabbit's foot—that's not spiritual courage. So it's it's a deeper type of awareness of courage as well. So in terms of the practices that support the cultivation uh, or the nurturing, let's call it the nurturing of these qualities, um, 
What do you recommend? I, I guess we could put this in the lens of, of recovery or the larger sense that we're all in recovery. Um, but in, in, I wanted to get a little bit into the book. And um, if people are listening to this and curious and want to dive in, can you give us kind of a sense of the um, the tone, the feel, the flavor, the, yeah, just a little bit under the cover a little bit. The book actually started off as an audio course on Insight Timer, the meditation app, and I just focused mm-hmm. on 30, 30 principles. And that became same 30 principles or now 30 chapters of the book, but yoga philosophy was added to each of the principles and each of the principles was drawn out and more research, uh, really more of a well-rounded examination of the principle and then adding the practices to cultivate awareness of it, to strengthen it if it needs to be strengthened, to heal it if it needs to be healed, to to transform it if it needs to be transformed. Uh, So the book became this very organic thing where I figured it would just be sort of an extension of the course and it became somewhat, it took on a life of its own. So a lot of the, the practices are based in yoga, a lot of mindfulness type exercises as well. Um, and a lot of it is, is meditation. There are uh, a lot of questions where readers will just hopefully read the question and pause and sit with it and see what comes up. There's s- stretches. It's interesting because to try to teach physical poses on a, in a book without looking at a teacher or a video, it can be challenging. So there's not a lot of uh, poses. There's not a lot of physical yoga in the book. It's more along the lines of what we've been talking about this whole time, just ways of thinking, ways of being. It's the uh, the consciousness that we're looking to, to change, alter, to amend, to 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 find different ways of being. Like I mentioned, uh, reaching out for the alcohol. The alcohol is not my problem. It's why I'm reaching out. So if I can figure out what am I reaching out for? Why am I reaching out? Why am I not able to just be with myself? So a practice there would be sit stillness, do mountain pose, just stand there. And for those who are unable to just be with themselves, that pose is torture. It's torture just to be with yourself, just to sit. That's why we're drinking. That's why we're using. We don't want to be with ourselves. That's what happens in active addiction. If I was okay being with myself, I wouldn't be trying to not be with myself. I would be one. I would be present. So a lot of the practices are helping us figure out ways to be with yourself, sit there, meditate. And we have mantras we use. There's some prayers that we use. There's some of it's some some old stuff in Sanskrit. Some of it's some new stuff in, in plain English, like I am love. Use that as a mantra. I am love. If you don't feel love for yourself, you're going to talk your way into it. You're going to start that dialogue with yourself, with your heart, with your soul, with your spirit. You're going to start to open up that line of dialogue. Like we talked about, believe that you are worthy. You are a child of God. You are whole and complete. You're not broken. You're not wrong. You're not bad. You're not negative. You're not a screw-up because you drank or used drugs or did other things. That's not your true nature. And so a lot of Mm -hmm. these practices are meant to bring us back to our true nature. It's beautiful to hear you talk about love in the context of it being a noun. I am love. Um, this not a not a transactional verb, um, but a being that you actually are in the deepest sense of 
your truth and and what flows what are the verbs that flow out of us what are the actions that emanate out of us what is the speech that comes out of us what are the thoughts that move through us what are the emotions that are like waves that come and go when the ground is love and that's a really beautiful way to hold the practice. So I'm, I'm appreciative of you sharing that specific one. And it feels like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but is, uh, I'm, I guess I'm trying to make sense of, is this something that because there's 30 of them, we could, as, as your readers here, move through one per day and, and like cultivate it that way? Is it take your time with it. Like you were saying with the Upanishads, go a little slower, or is it just kind of a choose your own adventure? And uh, to, can you open it to any point? Give me a little bit of, of a sense of like structure, format and flow. That's interesting. Yeah. They, the book is set up with 30 different principles. I, and what you just mentioned is actually a, a very interesting, it's actually a good idea. It is set up in a way where you don't have to go lesson one to lesson 30 or chapter one to chapter 30 you can skip around there's it's not like the 12 steps where you should start with one and go through to 12 you can't skip around on something like that it's uh <laughs> they're kind of lined up in their in the order they are for a specific reason you don't start with 12 you're you need to work your way toward that um it would help if this book was read from from the beginning to end but you know, we all have our own ways. We all have our own paths. When I was a kid, I used to always open the back of a book first and read the last page. I wanted to see how it ended. Then I would go back to the beginning and start. I, I needed a heads up. <laughs> yeah, the design. It's like, this is a big picture. We forgot who we are. Now let's go back and get into the, the journey. Yeah. yeah, but as far one a day is a great idea. I talked to someone today. I did get some advanced copies, so I sent one to someone, and uh, he let me know today. He said, I'm going to read one a day. Uh, so far I'm just going to do one a day and he goes, then I'm going to talk to you afterwards and tell you what I think. And I thought, Oh, cool. So I think it's an individual journey, just like reading the Upanishads in three days or 30 days or three years, you know? So the book is set up where it's mostly, um, conversational and hopefully it comes across as, uh, I'm just another, another guy, just another friend in recovery, another person who's into yoga and some spiritual practices. And I've been on this path a little while and here's some things that work for me. Maybe give them a shot if you're looking for some help or some support if you're suffering in any way. And so I, I really tried to make the, the cool thing is you don't have to try to make these practices accessible. Uh, they're, mm -hmm. they're universal. Breathing, we all breathe. So to, to share with someone, take a deep inhale and let go of the exhale. We can all breathe. We all have breath. Um, doing mudras, like bring your first finger and thumb together. We can all, most of us can do that. And so most of the practices, I would say, if not all of them, are very accessible. The only thing that's going to block anyone is is some sort of uh, ignorance in regard to ego or attachment that, oh, I don't do yoga. Oh, I don't like this mm -hmm. author. I don't like this book. It's too much this. It's too much that. Um, and unfortunately, you may remain in ignorance. So in recovery, being open-minded is really, really important. Willing, teachable, humble, childlike mind, beginner's mind. And um, yeah, as far as a book goes, you know, I, I read books all the time as well. Some books resonate. I'll read the first page and I'm like, yeah, not for me. So whoever's supposed to read this will. Whoever's not, they won't. And what I've learned through my yoga practice is and now as an author, uh, I don't have much attachment. Uh, if it sells, awesome. If not, 
awesome. I did what I was supposed to do, which was write a book. That was the next right thing. That came through. That was what felt to be the next thing. I did that, and I have no attachment to the results. I was told when I got sober, you're in the action business. God's in the results business. And it shows up mm-hmm. in the Bhagavad Gita quite often, this idea of non-attachment. The fruits of your labor are not yours to have. You get on the battlefield. You do the work. You take the action. I take care of the results. And and so, yeah, if anyone loves the book, great. If they like it, great. If they don't like it, great. Tell me why. We'll talk about it. I love it so much. I was having a conversation the other day with someone about this podcast and just kind of getting it going and, you know, How's it going so far? Are you looking at the analytics and, you know, it's the reach, how many people, da, 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 da. And I said, honestly, like the outcome is none of my business. Right. It's, it's, I'm not here for that. I felt this come through as an undeniable sense of alignment and, and with great clarity. Um, you know, if I tried to go back at anything else in my life that has been, such a beautiful gift. Like, you know, those first few classes you were describing, could you imagine, you know, meeting that Brian and saying, and then fast forward, you're going to be a father, you're going to be an author, you're going to have these courses on insight, you're going to be helping people in their recovery. I mean, it, it's not even comprehensible. So it's almost like a waste of time. And, and so it's, 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 there's something beautiful about knowing that like, it's worth doing because it's worth doing that just literally the act of doership is so fulfilling unto itself. So I feel that resonant in this conversation. I am so grateful to be sitting with you and just connecting into this current of meaningful dialogue that is going to ripple effect itself out to wherever it's supposed to go or not go, which is none of our business. And, and, and we're just in service to being in alignment with our current, the way that it expresses itself through us. And when we move from painter to paintbrush, you know, where, where we just let ourselves become the instrument, it's the, the, the level of ease that permeates our respective beings and it, and it, and yet it's so abundant. I'm thinking of like in the yogic mythology, um, we have Lakshmi, and she's like this goddess of detachment and this goddess of abundance. And it's like we usually think of those things as opposite. Like, oh, I need less. It's like that's that is the spirit, and you can feel it when we're in it, and we're not clamoring for what am I going to get out of it and how am I going to get there and that piece and we get to set it down. It's so, it's such a relief, especially to, I think the constitution of um, maybe particularly to some degree more so being a male in the United States of America in this time, there's a lot of pressure to, you know, what are the results? How are you going to get there, et cetera. And to say, I'm going to follow my heart into this path of yoga and I don't necessarily care how many people buy my book. I'm not looking at it that way. It's because it wants to come through me. And, and, and I'm kind of like the birth canal for this thing. And, you know, and just when we, when we let it just be what it is, it's, 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 it's beautiful energy that comes out of us. And I, and I do believe there's a contagiousness or a virality to that experience. Um, so 
that being said, we're into like our last 15 minutes ish of the, of the pod. And I feel like we could go for hours and hours. So <laughs> I want to kind of hit you with a few things, maybe a little more rapid fire and, and, and just get your thoughts. Um, th- this is sort of the reserved for the questions I had that I didn't get to. <laughs> and I want to just get, get your two cents on it. Um, the role of intentional and ceremonial usage of psychedelics for someone that is established in their sobriety. Well, that's, that's a, that's a topic these days. It could be controversial. Um, When I got sober, I was told no mind altering substances from the neck up. And that Mm -hmm. was kind of what I was told is um, you don't take anything. Um, Now, I know there's there's a lot of research these days that psychedelics can be very helpful for certain things, and so I would take I would say my I guess my my suggestion or opinion would be it's it's up to the individual. So if someone feels like a certain type of psychedelic is going to help them with a certain condition that modern medicine or spiritual practices are not able to help with, and they need the help, then seek what you need get what you need and and in a responsible way a respectable way an honest way um you know i've seen a lot of things recently where uh, we we have to be careful especially if if someone is has a history of addiction and thinks mm-hmm. they can get away with just taking a little bit of this thing because they read about it and no, now it's legal and you know i've seen a lot of people in california here marijuana is is can be obtained legally and a lot of people have lost their sobriety because they thought, well, it's legal, and then it led to drinking again and drugs again. And I'm not saying that happens for everyone, but I think it's an individual thing, and we just have to be careful with with, with how we do that. Um, a lot of the shamanistic rituals involve psychedelics sometimes, and if it's done in a respectful way, if it's if it's a cultural thing, if it's um, um, if it's intentional, I think that's the word you use. Then, yeah, and we've, we 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 were okay. We're in a safe place. You know, I read about a study where they were doing this at a school. I forgot the university, but they have a person, they have people trained to sit there with you, to, yeah. and they're they're ready in case you have any any type of uh, a reaction. They're they're there to support you in case you start to 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 have um, any kind of panic attack or whatever else might come. So personally, Absolutely. yeah, personally, I don't I don't take any kinds of uh, psychedelics or any kinds of drugs at this time, uh, and. Um, if needed by a doctor, let's say I have a surgery, I need a pain medication, I'll probably take the pain medication as prescribed by the doctor. I'm not a martyr. If I have pain and I need to take a painkiller, then uh, I had a surgery, I'll take the painkiller. Uh, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting topic in, in the uh, recovery circles. Is, mm-hmm. is it, Are you still sober if you do this? Or can you take this? Mm-hmm. What if you get your teeth pulled? Can you take Vicodin? It's individual. Some people can take it responsibly. Some people their recovery is not in place first, they can be in trouble. I appreciate the nuance in the, in the approach. And I want to be clear to this is obviously we're not setting this up where you're, you know, suggesting diagnosing, et cetera. I just was more curious in the, from the standpoint of being somebody that has really steeped deep into the, the inner work arts as well as 12 step and where those, um, where those boundaries live and, and really how unique they are for each of us. It's hard for us to have those hard and fast rules and really, you know, really being in clarity and, 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 and deep 
radical honesty with ourselves seems to be at the heart of that. Um, next question in this little flash round here is um, you and I um, kind of reconnected a few years ago when there was a magazine article about um, yoga and fatherhood. And I can't remember how that came to be, but I think you maybe reached out to me on like Facebook or something like that. Saw that I had kids was in, into yoga, um, which I so appreciate. I actually just showed my daughter recently cause she was young. She doesn't, she didn't remember then I was like, look at you sitting up in the acro on my feet. Right. And, I remember that um, picture. Uh, thank you. Well, I so appreciate that. And I wanted to ask you like, um, I guess in, in, in the nutshell version, what has been the deepest lesson um, and contribution of fatherhood to your um, spiritual slash recovery journey. I think this is the biggest pause I've taken so far. The um, usually I'm not at a loss for words. There's things I can say, but I, I really, I take I take the role of father as as sacred. I've been entrusted with the, how can you, is there anything more precious than you're in charge of someone's human life? It's your job to make sure they're safe, they're secure, they grow up uh, healthy and happy. And so it, it's really, um, it means everything to me. Um, I even forgot what the question was. How does, what What was the, <laughs> yeah. in, in, the, I don't know that I remember either, but it's to the, the somewhere on the point of like, the 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 biggest like um, impact or 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 lessons that like being a father has sort of shed its light onto your spiritual journey and your recovery journey. Yeah, I just thought of something funny. Um, so one of my uh, one of my friends in recovery, he has many years of sobriety, decades. He and I laugh often because I'll share things with him that my daughter says. You know, like from the mouths of babes, she's like a little Buddha, right? She says these things, and he just cracks up. He's he tells me she's your best teacher, mm-hmm. and I really believe that. So if I think I know anything about, like we talked about, spiritual courage or physical courage, and 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 then I see my daughter trying to do something that she couldn't do yesterday, but she doesn't give up. Like I thought I knew about physical courage. Like wow, look at that. She has every reason in the world to quit, but she will not quit. That's how I want to be like that. She's my teacher in that moment. It's very humbling. Like I said, there's the there's the the appearance that we're in charge, right? We're we're supposed to take care of them, but if we look deep enough, we'll see the the interbeingness of that. They're taking care of us. She's without my daughter, I wouldn't know greater compassion, tolerance, love, pity, especially love. Patience. My daughter's been my greatest teacher of patience. Something as simple as just trying to get out the door in the morning, get her to get her shoes on. (laughs) When she was little, you know, it takes so long. Every parent out there listening is like, oh my God, I'm totally with you. It takes so long. Like, just put your shoes on. Can we please just leave the house? Put your shoes on. I asked you five times. And now it's, it's, it's no more of the inner anguish of oh just put your shoes on now it's the acceptance of you know what take as long as you need i mean why am i rushing her what's where's the where are we going what's the rush and i've learned patience i've learned understanding from her i've learned so many amazing things and 
I've taken that piece because I, I don't just put a hat on when I'm a yoga teacher and just be a yoga teacher. And then I take that hat off and then I put on the author writer hat and then I start writing my book and then I take that hat off and then I've got the father hat. I can't wear three different hats. I don't have three different heads. So I take that fatherhood piece. If I learn greater compassion and understanding and patience with my daughter, guess what I'm able to show my students and patients, clients, and friends, neighbors. Um, yeah, it does start here. I'm with her all the time. She sees me. I think it was Marilyn, Marilyn Monroe said, if you can't take me at my worst, you don't deserve me at my best. So she sees me when I'm tired. She sees me when I'm not super Mr. Spiritual guy. And she still loves me. So she teaches me unconditional love. I'm still daddy. And 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 she she's she doesn't judge. There's no condemnation. Um Yeah. She's pretty cool. <laughs> mm. She's the best thing that ever happened. I mean it's funny, people are like, Oh, you got a book, that's awesome. And when people are like, What are the coolest things? I'll either say which I said before was realizing I was an alcoholic and then a pretty close second depending on the day is um being a father and without attachment because I'm not perfect as a yoga teacher I'm not perfect as a writer I'm not perfect as as a dad I have to learn all this stuff as I go there's no manual I didn't read a book on it I'd read a few things <laughs> I did but there's no master book about uh parenting perfection um and what is that anyway to be honest, I mean, to practice. Who, according to whose standards is what? What's the standard of perfection that we're reaching for? I mean, aren't we all just humans figuring it out as we go? And one lesson I actually received from my daughter along these lines was um, we were walking downtown by where we live, which is a, a little town in Florida called Stewart, and it's got uh, I don't know if you remember that one from when you were a Floridian in in prehistoric <laughs> times. But um, it's just a kind of a quaint little town and um, there's a cute downtown by a river and uh, we're walking down there and we're walking by a cigar store and they have one of these big cigar store Indians out there. And she's probably, I don't know, two, three, four, I don't know. She looks up and she's like, daddy, look, that's Buddha. And I said, no, Sienna, that's a cigar store Indian. You know, I'm teaching her. And she goes, no, daddy, that's Buddha. And I was like, Sienna, that's a cigar store Indian. She goes, it's Buddha. And I'm like, come on, let's walk. And this guy starts to walk by us and she points at him and she goes, daddy, that's Buddha. And I go, Sienna, that's just a man. And she goes, no, daddy, it's Buddha. And then we walk a little bit. We go around the corner. This lady walks by and she squeezes my hand. She goes, daddy, that's Buddha. And I'm like, Sienna, that's a lady. And she's like, no, daddy, it's Buddha. And And for some reason it hit me and I was like, Oh, yeah. we're all Buddha like that. She's seeing like Buddha nature and I'm over here thinking, how am I going to become a great teacher for her? And, you know, what if, what if I die before I get to like share it all with her? And it's like, man, she's coming in clear, open channel and sees it. And it's just, it's beautiful. The lessons that, that, they're teaching us. So thank you for the reshaping of it that way. I really appreciate and, and resonate with that and, and couldn't agree more. The, the greatest gift of this journey to, to be entrusted with the, the 
communion of that relationship is just really something profound. Another one that's really touched my heart um, that I'd like to um, maybe next to last question is the role of community. You had presenced this early in our conversation and um, you know, the studio I created here, it's called Kula. Kula means community um, of the heart. It kind of, kind of connotates more of the sense of tribe or closeness. And you talked about like, isn't this what people, healthy people do? They get together and they, they go hike, they go do yoga. There's something about the steeping into consciousness, this deeper realms of consciousness that yoga offers the healing and the community. It's like, wow, I'm meeting all these other people from a much deeper space. I remember putting my shoes on after yoga back when I was first practicing and thinking, why is everybody getting in their car and driving separate ways? Like, what if we didn't, what if we communed, what if we, and and that's been really a driving um, North star for me is building not just like a, like a studio for a place for people to come in, go and go on with their day, but to a, you know, take it with them inside of them, not to to put the cloak of personality back on um, and work to whatever degree you might need to, to feel safe and interact with the world. But, um, but to connect and commune with one another, to have movie nights and meet at the beach and practice and watch a movie together and have potlucks and do drum circles and do a service project and go into trainings and, and all these things. And so it feels like, you know, in, in this journey that you're on, um, in both the yoga, I don't even want to put in the and anymore, but in the yoga recovery space, um, and I'm looking at, at at some people like Laura McCallan, who's doing some really good work in the yoga recovery space. Noah Levine, um, bringing some like meditation and Buddhist Dharma and um, Y12SR things like that. Like, um, what to you is the the import of um, community in, in in service of healing? Nobody gets well on their own. That's nobody gets sober on their own. I've yet to see someone get uh, find their way in recovery by themselves. I didn't do it, and reluctantly, I did open myself up to talking with some other people who had similar issues, and it saved my life. So my personal experience with community is it saved my life. Being around other people that I could either like-minded or like-intentioned, we're on similar paths, so we're going to do life together. And the details will be different. Maybe I'm going for this job and you're going for that job and I'm going to live in this neighborhood and you live in that neighborhood, but we're both heading in the right direction, the same direction. So why don't we just do it together? And that way we can share resources. And the resources don't have to be material. It could just be knowledge or wisdom. Like, hey, guess what? When I went through my divorce, here's what happened because I know you're going through a divorce. So you may want to do this first then this and then this. And then here's what happened when I had that cancer scare. I talked to this specialist and then he recommended this. I would do that. And you have this whole wealth of information in front of you with community. Most of it can save your life if you're open to it. On your own, you're just you're stuck with this myopic kind of very single-minded view, which is, oh, I'll figure it out on my own. I got this. You don't got nothing. That's just, <laughs> I've tried that. I got this. Oh, yeah? Where'd that land you? Suicidal, depressed, anxious, fearful, angry. That was me with, with thinking I had the power. I got this. And so my first introduction to community was in a 12-step recovery. 
fellowship is part of the 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 uh, it's inherent to the twelve steps. You you go to a meeting and you're with other people, and then I found it in yoga community, like you mentioned, and I found it in Buddhism. One of the three jewels you have the Buddha, which is the teacher, the Sangha, which is uh, the sorry the, the second is the Dharma, the teachings, and then the third jewel is the Sangha, which is the community. The Buddha, you know, he didn't just make stuff up. And if this is the teaching, he's basically saying you need a teacher, the teachings, and the community to practice with. You don't have to be a monk or nun. You can be a lay person. You can just come and visit on the weekends, but at least you have people to do the same work with. I think it's very important. And community, when healthy, when people work together, there's no stopping us. And it doesn't take a huge community. Usually it's small groups that are dedicated, that really have their... Their, their, their morals and their ethics lined up and, and their ideals and they're working toward change, they will affect change in the world. Um, I don't know many people who just change the world on their own. You know, even Gandhi had some people around him. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. had a lot of people around him. So it, it takes, a, it takes, you know, they all, it takes a village it, and it really does. Um, so there's uh, the last thought I had around that was there's a guy I got sober with. We're both still sober, and we 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 we've been doing life together, separately but together. We've been sharing stuff together for nearly you know 15 years. Whatever one of us goes through, the other one's probably gone through something similar. So we share. We keep sharing back and forth. It takes the pressure off. It takes the anxiety away. It takes the 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 meanness off of. Oh, I just went through this. Well, so did so and so. Go ask him. He'll help you out. And all of a sudden, that's exactly where I was. Where I was living within me it was not just the like, oh, I can, I got this, but the sense of like, this is just about me, and no one else is going through this. And there's something when we realize something about when we realize that what I'm experiencing is deeply personal, is actually incredibly universal. Right. That gives it just enough room to be able to go like, okay, this isn't a me story. It's a we story. I'm going to depersonalize. It gives me enough room to start to get a little curious with the pattern in a more depersonalized way. Yeah. And we find the solutions together. Like I mentioned, there's a support group for everything. After my mother passed away, I went to a a support group for grief because I had no idea how to handle that. And so I had already been sober a little while. I figured I should just, this model works. I should find a group of people who are focusing on this and go sit with them. And I did. It was very helpful to go. It's very humbling, but at the same time, very empowering. Like we talked about, like, I don't know. That's me saying I'm powerless. I don't know how to handle grief. Do you guys know? Let's figure it out together. And all of a sudden it takes the pressure off of just one person trying to figure out something on their own. That's too much. It's too much. Uh, Why not use other people? in a positive way, use community. My, um, you know, my, in my relationship, one of the things that I learned from my partner is <clears throat> she said to me once, um, so much of, because so much of our wounding happens within relationship, then so much of our healing does too. And that really struck me how powerful that is. It's, it's like we, we apply the medicine where the wound is. And, and so when we get to experience a sense of connection where, as you were saying earlier, there's abandonment, where there's rejection, where there's betrayal, right? There's all these, there's so many of 
these imprints, these samskaras are relational in nature. And so the healing is relational in nature too. And, and so that all said, um, last sort of uh, thought, I guess, to, to check in on to close the container of this conversation. And I hope that we get to find, find a way to connect again in, in whatever ways I feel beautiful kinship and your Brian, you're a beautiful man. Thank you so much for, for being in this conversation. It's been amazing to hear you. And I wanted to, to just ask if you would be willing to share with anybody that is like in it, in it right now, like in the struggle right now, um, if you can kind of put yourself in the remembrance of when you were at that rock bottom and just needing maybe that, that, that someone, that community, that word, that message, uh, if you could just check in with your heart, like the way your teacher said, you should be a teacher or like whatever, like if there's, if there's anything that comes through your channel that, and if it's, if there's not, I don't want to put pressure on that, but if there's something that wants to come through, I want to make sure that we hold space for that as well. Hang in there. I think that's a spiritual principle. And again, I'm taking liberty with what I feel is spiritual, but hanging in there is a very powerful spiritual principle. It doesn't get the credit it deserves. Sometimes hanging in there, it might just save a life. What that means for anyone individually, it's going to mean something individually. Maybe hanging in there for somebody who, instead of using drugs tonight, they're going to just binge watch Netflix. They're just going to hang in there tonight and see what happens tomorrow. Maybe they're going to think about uh, doing something destructive, but they hang in there. They call a friend instead. They hang in there. They they, they, they go for a drive. That's what I used to do. Uh, I haven't shared this in a long time, but I couldn't stay home with myself when I was getting sober in L.A. So I'd get in my car and I would drive up and down PCH. <laughs> Gas prices weren't so high back then. <laughs> so I would just drive about an hour or so up PCH until I got tired enough to turn around and come back. Uh, I'd get up to about Santa Barbara and then I'd come back. And that's how I hung in there. I just went for a drive because I couldn't stand being by myself at home alone in my apartment. And I'd come home tired and go right to bed. So that was me hanging in there. So whatever you need to do to hang in there to make it one more day, just trust the process um, and reach out. So here's the thing. You know, this book, the courses I have, the podcasts I've done, I work in treatment. Uh, it's, it's, I'm one of, I, I'm, I'm you. You know, I am me. You are me. I am you. If I can do it, anyone can do it. The only reason I'm sober is because sober people in front of me, just ahead of the path in front of me, they turn around and they reach their hand back. That's what I'm doing with this book. That's why I'm doing the work on the podcast and the recordings and everything else. Hopefully one of these breadcrumbs on the path will find its way to you. And if it's not me, find another teacher. Um, And don't give up hope. I think that comes with hanging in there. There's always hope. There's always hope. yeah. Find a yoga class yeah. too. <laughs> find some yoga. Go find <laughs> find a free yoga class somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, brother, thank you so much for sharing the message, for being the message, for hanging in there in your own journey, for taking those drives, and for really listening to the call of your spirit to touch into those deeper guidances in your nature that have led you back to your mat, that led you to your recovery, that led you to the call to share and to serve and to step into the role of fatherhood and leadership. 
and finding and being willing and courageous enough to share your voice and put yourself out there. Uh, I know that's not always the easiest thing for people. Um, and, and I have a lot of respect and gratitude for you. And I thank you for being here with me today. Thanks so much. And great job with your studio and everything. Like you said earlier, like we, you know, we grew up together, we went to in the same town and, uh, and I did reach out and, and, uh, I, I I was looking for sober dads, uh, not sober dads. I'm sorry, yoga dads, yoga dads for the uh, for the article, and um, and I'm glad you reached out because that's how we connected. And I'm glad, uh, yeah, we, we we caught up again. So let's keep in touch. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Thank you, and thank you everyone for joining us, and look forward to seeing y'all next time. <laughs>